Well, good morning and welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. Uh, it, if we have not met, my name is David and it's good to be with you after being gone these last two weeks. I know you were blessed by uh, Pastor Lauren's message that she shared last weekend and uh, Bishop Lowry, our Episcopal leader, uh, who shared with you the weekend uh, before that. Uh, uh, every two years, our church uh, does a trip to the Holy Land, and uh, uh, we, we had our biggest group ever. It took over 70 this year uh, to the Holy Land, so that's where I've been. Uh, we got back Thursday night last week, really late, uh, and I did you the favor of not preaching through the fog of jet lag. Uh, I, I did that my first trip. It was a mistake. It, w- it, it did not go well. I think I said some good things about Jesus, but I'm not really sure. So uh, that's, that's why we scheduled it this way. Uh, but uh, uh, we had a great trip. Uh, many have asked about that. Uh, uh, the success of any trip that you do in the church is, is, is all the same. Doesn't matter whether it's a, a trip to Israel or a mission trip with youth or adults or retreat. If you come back with the same number that went with you, success that's success. And we did that. So we didn't leave anybody behind in Jerusalem. Um, had a great time. I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, in the message today. But what I invite you to do is to open your Bible to Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 45 through 56 is our passage for today. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, uh, you can find Mark 6 on page 1566 uh, in the blue Bible that we have in all of our worship spaces. So I want to encourage you to find that as we continue this series. This is the fourth message, the witness of Mark. We're reading through the Gospel of Mark together as we move through uh, the Lenten season, and we're continuing uh, that today. Uh, At starting point on Wednesday night, uh, which is a class we have for for new members, we always have a break in the middle of that. Uh, And during that break, someone asked me this question, what do you do for fun? And as I started to share my answer, even I was bored with what I said. But, but here's one of the things that I do for fun. I like to go to the bookstore. Somebody else like to go to the bookstore? I, I love to go to the bookstore and just browse, look at, look at books. And the, the section that I, I usually visit first, this, this may sound strange, but I always visit the Bible section first. I love looking at Bibles. Now you may think, don't you have a Bible? Yes, I have a Bible. I have plenty of Bibles. I have two, two shelves of Bibles uh, and I have another shelf at home, but I still love to go and look at the Bibles. I don't know why, I just always do. And every once in a while you'll find something new there that, that kind of intrigues you. And so I want to show you this. This is volume four uh, of a set. It's uh, from the NIV Bible Project. And you may have seen uh, some Bibles like this. I'll show you a picture uh, of, of what this is. Uh, this is a reader's Bible. It's kind of a new category of, uh, of Bibles, as if we needed you know, something else. But the idea behind a reader's Bible is everything else is removed except for the words of Scripture. So what you might notice here is there's no chapter numbers, there's no verse numbers. If you you can't quite see this, just imagine any other book you've ever seen in your life, that's what the pages look like in a reader's Bible. Everything else is, is taken away. The text is in its original form which you may not know. Mark didn't add all those numbers in there. That's, uh, that, that's not original. Uh, this, this is what it would have looked like in an, an original format. And, and the idea is that when you engage the Scripture in, in that way, when you read it in that way, you, you, you do it in kind of a different way. You, you, you read it a bit differently. And, and I can report to you that that's, that's kind of true. You take all that extra stuff out of the way and you just, 
you engage with the text in, in a little bit different way. So one of the things I told you in the first week of the series is that if you were ever going to read a gospel with us, this was the time, because this is the shortest one. Uh, and, and when you read it in this format, and all you have to go by is the page numbers, not the chapter numbers, not the verse numbers, it's even more clear how short and concise and how rapidly Mark tells the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So let me recap for you where we've been, and, and let me just show you again how rapid uh, Mark moves through this and, and give it to you in this format. So on page one, Mark doesn't begin with the story of the birth of Jesus. He, we talked about that a few weeks ago. He, he begins with John the Baptist. And I know you can't quite see this, but this is how much space John gets. Okay, uh, John, John gets, you know, half a page, uh, but, but after that, he, he is immediately into the ministry of Jesus. At the top of page two, Jesus is calling his first disciples. He's, he's beginning his ministry. Uh, and again, the story moves so rapidly that by the time you get to page three in this format, the adversaries of Jesus have already shown up. Uh, the, the, the message has already spread so far and wide, the, the disruption of Jesus' ministry has been felt by so many that adversaries have shown up. Through the rest of page three and all the way into page four, what you find is the confrontations continuing between Jesus and his adversaries. And by the bottom of page four, this is what you read. The Pharisees, those were some of the adversaries, went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We're four pages into the story, and there's people already plotting to kill Jesus. You get to page five, you realize that Jesus has already put together all of his disciples. Uh, things have gone so far, the, the, the frenzy around Jesus is, is so out of hand that by the middle of page five, the family of Jesus has shown up. They're looking for him. They're trying to talk him into coming home because in the words of Mark, they're convinced that he's out of his mind. That's how crazy this, this is in the, in the middle of this story. Jesus is undeterred. He continues what he has been doing all along. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And the crowds are continuing to come. Everywhere he goes, a crowd greets him to hear more about this message that is just a little bit different from anything they've ever heard before. Page 7, we have the first episode on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are in the boat with Jesus. Remember, some of these disciples were fishermen. They'd spent their entire life on these waters. But there's a storm that comes up that's unlike any other storm they've ever seen. They're, they're worried for their, for their lives. And, and they turn to Jesus, who's in the front of the boat, sleeping. So if you're a heavy sleeper and, you know, you could sleep through a tornado, there's something you have in common with Jesus. He's, he's sleeping in the boat. So they go and they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus says, quiet, be still. And the storm stops. Either because he wants them to know, I really do care. Or because he... He was really enjoying his nap, and he wasn't up, real happy that they woke him up. I, I don't know. Uh, you, you keep going in the story, and, and what you realize by page 10, you hear on, on page 10 that John the Baptist, that person we met at the very beginning of the story, he's been killed by, by King Herod. 
And so these adversaries of Jesus, there's some power behind this confrontation that they're bringing. But, but on page 11, you realize again that there's, there's power in what Jesus is doing as well. Jesus is on a mountainside. He's, he's there with thousands of people. The disciples get a little bit concerned. They say, Jesus, you got to send these people home. We don't have food to feed them. Jesus says, well, what do you have? Well, five loaves and two fish. And with these meager resources, Jesus feeds, feeds all of them. And that brings us, again, page 11, that brings us to our, our, our text for today. Here's what it says. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he, Jesus, went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he, Jesus, was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them, and shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Because if you can walk on water, why would you get in the boat, right? I mean, he's just ready. I'll meet you there. But they saw him walking on the lake. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed." One of the highlights of, of every trip uh, that, that I've taken to the Holy Land is uh, being able to take a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. I'll show you a, a video from that, uh, fr- from that ride. It's not quite the authentic experience. You don't have to row with oars to get over. There's an engine. So it's kind of like Disney World where they have a boat and they kind of dress it up as something else. So it looks, looks ancient, but it's not. You can tell from the sound, but you can also see that we had a beautiful day uh, there on, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, great, great weather. You could see all of the mountains uh, surrounding uh, the sea. Uh, you, uh, the, the, the birds all, all around us had a great time. Uh, took, took a moment there in the middle uh, to turn, uh, turn off the engine of the boat and just sit in stillness. And, and while you're there... Uh, in, in this boat ride, if, if you look at the shoreline, I want to kind of explain to you what you see as you look back at the shore. Uh, if you turn to your left, you'll, you'll see this. This, uh, this. this image right here is, is what you'll see. You see the mountains, and, and you might notice right through here a, a valley area. And that's the Valley of the Doves. Uh, that is the ancient pathway uh, that people would have taken from the area in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, to this area surrounding the Sea of Galilee. When you come out of the Valley of the Doves, one of the first villages that Jesus would have come to is the village of Magdala. Uh, Magdala, the hometown of Mary Magdalene. That's what you see when you look 
to your left. If you look to your right, this is, this is what you see. You see the shoreline here, and it kind of recedes back into a, uh, what is the northernmost point of the Sea of Galilee. This is where the Jordan empties into the Sea of Galilee. If you go all the way to the south end of the Sea of Galilee, that's where those waters go back into the Jordan River, flowing all the way to the Dead Sea. But here in the northern uh, tip of the Sea of Galilee, you find the city of Bethsaida. That's the city that we read about in verse 45. So when Jesus says he sends them over to the other side, he goes up on the mountainside to pray. Go back to that first picture. This uh, This is quite possibly where he was. The disciples are in the middle of the lake. They're heading to Bethsaida, the other side. And, and so from Magdala to Bethsaida, you look in front of you, you see Capernaum, you see the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus uh, shared the Sermon on the Mount. You see several other places that connect to various episodes in the gospel. And what you realize is that most of what occurred in Jesus' ministry happened right here on the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. If your pastor had been smart enough to take a panoramic shot, you could see it all. It all happened right here. This is, this is where lives were changed. This is where people were healed. This is where Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. This is where it all started. This is where the, the, the frenzy began. <laughs> And in the middle of this frenzy, in the middle of crowds coming out to to hear Jesus, uh, people bringing the sick, in the middle of all of this, there's a a couple things worth noting where we are in the gospel. It's worth noting that that the disciples don't yet know who Jesus is. Did you, did you catch that as, as he walks across the water? They're amazed because they did not understand about the loaves. They've seen him calm the storm. They've seen him miraculously feed thousands. They've now seen him walk on water, but they still don't really get it. They don't really know who he is, and the crowds don't either. They don't, they don't fully understand who Jesus is, why he has come into the world, what he is about to do. No one does. And yet, thousands are coming. Thousands are coming. Out of their sense of desperation, out of their hunger for hope, they're coming. And one of the most vivid expressions of that is, it's there in, I think it's verse 55. My Bible doesn't have the verses in it, but I'm pretty sure it's 55, where it says, that they were carrying the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And just let that sink in for a moment. And, and imagine, imagine seeing people carrying the sick to wherever they thought he was, meaning that they may have arrived at a place and said, nope, he's already gone somewhere else. And, and their journey continued out of total desperation. They've come out to hear this mysterious new teacher who is doing unexplainable things. And so I want to ask you a question today. The question is, when was the last time you were that desperate? Can you remember when that is? When was the last time that you found yourself feeling that same awareness of need. 
responding in what from someone else's vantage point may have been in kind of a weird way, but you out of your sense of desperation found yourself doing something that maybe you wouldn't have done before. Has there been a time in your life where you've laid your head down at night and you've thought, I don't know how I'm going to get through what I'm going through right now. I don't know how I'm going to talk to this person, this, deal with this relationship, this fracture that I'm experiencing in my life. I don't know how I'm going to get through this loss of a job. I don't know how I'm going to share this diagnosis that's come. When's the last time that you found yourself that desperate? When, when, when you had a, a deep hunger of soul and, and you found yourself thinking, I don't care about ego. I don't care about how people perceive me. I just need help and I'm going to do whatever I can to find it. When's the last time you felt that desperate? And, and, and maybe... Maybe this is a better question. Did you feel that way as you came into worship today? Is that why you're here? And when, when you rolled over and you thought, is it, is it 8.15? Is it 7.15? I don't know what time it is. What, is, this, is this when I get up? I'm not sure. Did you get out of bed and come to this place because you were desperate for an experience of God. Because you're, you're looking for meaning in your life. You want to make sure that you're not wasting it. You, you, you want to learn more about what's here in these pages because there is something within you that says there's got to be more. Is that what accompanied you as, you as you came into worship today? Is, is that what you felt the last time you opened the Bible? To read it for yourself or the last time that you found yourself spending a few moments in prayer? Did you feel that sense of desperation, that awareness of your own need? I, I told you this was volume four, so here's volume one. Uh, this is the New Testament. This is the beginning of the Old Testament. And if you turn to page 4, not page 44, not page 504, but page 4 of this great story, what you find is humanity making our first grave mistake. And the mistake is beginning to question whether or not God really does have our best intentions in mind. And out of this questioning, humanity also finds themselves, also finds uh, itself thinking, well, maybe I don't really need God. And, and if you keep reading volume one, volume two, volume three, volume four, all throughout the scriptures, what you'll see is humanity making the same mistake over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that egregious error is one that you and I are prone to make as well. That's not something that some of us do. That's something that all of us do. We allow our hope to migrate. 
we find security and value and peace in other things. And we begin to believe, well, maybe I don't really need God. Faith, which may have started as a source of life for you, it becomes a hobby. Something you're interested in, but not something that is the foundation of your life. Because you think, I got it all together, I'm okay. I don't have need, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I can handle whatever life throws at me until something th comes that you can't quite handle. It's a mistake that we all make. We lose that sense of desperation, the awareness, the awareness that we are sheep and we need a shepherd. Here's one of the mistakes I make in my own life and, and I, see, I see us, and I mean us in terms of uh, the modern church, I see us making this mistake over and over again. Uh, we mistake learning about Jesus as the same as an experience of Jesus. Now, those aren't mutually exclusive. Learning about Jesus can be an experience of Jesus, but they are not the same. And one of the ways you can tell the difference between the two is one of them will leave you feeling satisfied. And one of them will always leave you hungry for more. In the modern church, here's another fallacy. Here's another thing that we get wrong all of the time. It's, a, uh, it's an expectation that we have a hard time releasing and, and seeing in a different way. There is this expectation in the modern church that, that, that what, what happens, this is how faith works. You come to church and the pastor helps grow your faith. And the pastor is able to do that because he or she has learned about Jesus and is therefore going to help you learn about Jesus. And, and then even perhaps worse, we have this idea that if we learn enough about Jesus, then we won't really need Jesus, except for the big things. It's a lie. It's a lie. Because the more that you experience Jesus, the more you recognize your need of Jesus. And all I have to offer you is that, just Jesus. And my own awareness of how deeply I need him in my life and, and how far short I am, how much grace I need that I am just like you. I'm, I'm, I'm a sheep too and I need a shepherd. Here's how John Wesley said it. You may have heard of John Wesley. He started a holiness movement in the 18th century. The people who were part of it came to be known as Methodists. Um, here's what he said about the people that he wanted to be a part of this movement. He said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. In other words, it doesn't matter what you know. It matters. What matters is your hunger for God. What matters is your hunger for God. So some of you may be brand new to this book and you don't get it all. You don't understand it all, but neither did the disciples. <laughs> neither did all those thousands who came out. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the whole thing. It doesn't matter as much what you know. What matters is your hunger for God. And so today, at this point in the story, I simply want to ask you, are you hungry? Are you hungry 
for an experience of Jesus? Are you hungry to not only learn about him, but to experience him as a living presence in your life, a sustainer, a redeemer, a savior, and Lord. And if you're not there, maybe today you would simply pray, Lord, would you restore my hunger? Would you humble me and remind me of how much I need you. So that's what I invite you to do. I want to invite you just to a time of prayer. If you'll bow your heads with me and close your eyes, I want to give you just a moment to think about that hunger in your life. What it is that brings you to this place today. What it is that directs this this journey of faith in your life. Holy and loving God, We confess today our fear of facing the overwhelming, all-consuming sense of need we really have. And out of that, Lord, we convince ourselves that we can place our trust in someone or something else. We think we've, we've got it all under control We forget how much we need you. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to to pursue you. As the deer pants for water, Lord, that we would also have a thirst for you, the living God. Lord, protect us from knowledge, puffing us up with pride. Rather, Lord, give us the wisdom to bend the knee to your lordship in our life, to your leadership in our life. Be with us as we continue this journey, walking through this gospel, seeing what you did seeing how much you gave in order to be a shepherd for each and every one of us. All these things we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.